0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Often, as uh, Charles and I are figuring out what do we want to talk about, One of us comes you know, comes up, something comes across our path, I should say, that says, hmm, this might be something interesting. So Charles, why don't you start off with what it is you sent me and how we came up with an episode that will basically attempt to answer the question, are we guilty of romanticizing paganism?
0: Yeah, what got my attention was a video on YouTube. I'm not going to refer to any specific information other than broadly speaking. Um, There's a fellow who moved to Venice Beach, California some years ago from another country, and he's been posting videos of his life there and that sort of thing. It caught my attention because he posted a video of a Hare Krishna festival in Venice Beach. Apparently, this had been for some time A regular, uh, an annual occurrence, but I guess because of the pandemic and all the rest of it, they hadn't been doing it until I think a few weeks ago is when it was actually held. And this was quite a big to do. I mean, there were, uh, you know, uh, places set up all over the street in the main boulevard there in Venice Beach where you could buy vegetarian food and they had all kinds of things related to the Hindu Hare Krishna religion going on. And then they had a big parade down the main street. And, uh, of course, there are lots of people hanging around Venice Beach all the time, glad to glom onto some parade. But they were really true believers and hangers-on of various sorts who were cavorting about with this thing. And it occurred to me because, uh, like a lot of people of our generation, I had an interest in Eastern religions when I was a younger man in my teens. And I studied Hinduism. I knew people that were involved with Hare Krishna um, and more legitimate forms of Hinduism. And I was quite taken with this stuff, as a lot of people were back in the 60s and 70s. And it was sort of a rude awakening to me on two levels when I realized in studying Reformed theology, and especially the writings of people like Cornelius Van Til and Gordon Clark, uh, that the cultural expressions of any society are, in fact, derived from the religious presuppositions of that society uh the, the the sort of broad way to put that is that culture is religion externalized as henry van till put it in his book the calvinistic concept of culture so i um staying with the youtube metaphor i came across a video series some time ago of a gentleman who unlike the guy in venice beach travels around various places in the world he's actually from california and uh he spent quite a bit of time in india he kind of buys into this whole stuff as well but unlike you know say a managed tour that somebody might go on in some of these places you know he, he's on his own he, he knows how to travel by himself and he just takes a plane gets on a bus or a train and goes to wherever he goes and that includes some I guess what you'd call normal regular out-of-the-way places than the big tourist traps and in his visits to India it is simply impossible not to be uh, aware of the grinding, horrific poverty and squalor that exists in many parts of that country. I'm not trying to be unkind, but that's just a a way of life that has been in existence in that culture for a long, long time, and it is directly uh, tied to the religion of Hinduism and maybe to some extent uh, Buddhism. So the comment that I made to you and sort of the genesis of this whole thing is that, you know, it's easy to uh, jump around and chant Hari Krishna down the streets of Venice Beach, California. Uh, but it's quite a different thing when you actually plop yourself down in the midst of the culture where that has been the religion and something like that for a thousand years or more. And to see how life is very, very different than in Southern California.
1: And one of the things when I was watching it, it's clear that there's some people who joined in this parade because they would join in any parade the way they might have joined in a riot or the way they might have joined in a protest somewhere. And then there were others who had the solemnity that said this was something special and they'd go up to the person who was on being carried. And this person had, you know, was not even acknowledging people. And it was um, obviously, this was supposed to be deemed some holy man. And the conclusion I came to Charles is whether you're doing it intentionally or you're just joining the crowd in terms of the living God, the creator of everything is this offensive to him or does it glorify him? And since so many people don't think in those terms, they don't think in terms of, is this what God says we should do and we can expect to be blessed? Or is this what God forbids us to do and we can expect to be cursed? And so the ignorance of people who fit into either of the two categories that I just mentioned was very obvious to me. And, I'm not sure if you went and asked participants or even spectators, if you said this is a manifestation of paganism or heathenism, what do you think about that? Maybe I'm wrong, but a lot of people there might've said, I think this is harmless. What does it matter? You know, are they having a good time? Do they feel good about themselves? And that would be the benchmark.
0: Dr. Rustini in an essay that he wrote in 1973 called Civilizations, Civil War speaks to this matter. Now, he's not talking about a Hare Krishna festival in this particular article, but he gets to the root of what is sort of in the background to this, this older idea going back to maybe the 18th and 19th centuries and especially the 20th century of everybody just sort of cooperate, cooperating in a, in a synthesis of people of religious goodwill. Because, you know, it can achieve this sort of thing that you're describing. We, we all can get along. We can feel good about ourselves. You've got your version of expression. I've got mine. Let's just live together in harmony and all the rest of it. I commend this article to our listeners because he gets to the root of the problem with that. It's really a humanistic way of thinking. Uh, and he mentions and what he's talking about the civil war in that article is the war between humanism and all of its manifestations of which all of the religions are a manifestation of humanism. Versus biblical religion, Christianity. Uh, and it is not something in which we are to throw daisies at each other and uh, engage in all kinds of sweet cooperation where we cede to people who think very differently than we do and have different presuppositions the essence and the truths of our faith. And that doesn't mean, of course, we engage in physical animosity toward others, not at all. But the point is, culture will inevitably be dominated by a theology. And it's either going to be a theology related to something like Hinduism or Islam or the biblical faith of Christianity. And those things have consequences. And all I'm saying is, as I said or hinted at in the very beginning, is if you want to see the consequences of any worldview, then look where that worldview has predominated for the longest time in, I guess, what we might call, uh, with some caveats, a pure form. And so we can see this. Where in, in this case, the Hindu religion has predominated in India for, as I said a moment ago, a thousand years. But people need to understand that this has become uh, a central issue in our culture. It goes back and I'm not talking about this idea of cooperating with people of good faith of other religions. I mean, specifically this particular one. Uh, and, and we see this especially in the youth culture of the 1960s, where young people were looking for answers. They, they weren't satisfied or happy with the, you know, the uh, Christian basic Christian faith of their parents and the culture at the time. And so, through popular culture, especially music and art and other things, many many young folks were introduced to foreign uh, pagan ideas of worship and belief. And in the case of the one we are talking about. Uh, One of the most popular conduits for this particular religion was the Beatles, and particularly George Harrison, who himself was an adherent of the same religion as those people parading down the street uh, in Venice Beach. And One
1: of the things that Eastern religions, because Hinduism, Buddhism would fall under this, is a view of escapism. In other words, the world is bad. Nothingness is good. The ultimate goal isn't dominion as in the dominion mandate that was given to Adam renewed with Noah and then renewed again with Abraham. The idea is you want to check out. And especially in the 70s, 60s and 70s, you had people who actually considered that a mission to be able to check out. And so it's interesting for me to look and say, okay, God has told us in his word what he requires. And it should be the mission of all his creatures to find out what that is and obey it. So what would be the opposite of covenant-keeping biblical religion? Well, that's where we get the words paganism and heathenism. And I was like, well, how are those two concepts different? So I went to our friend, Noah Webster, 1828, and he was helpful, but not that helpful because the first definition of paganism is heathenism. And then <laughs> heathenism, it's paganism. But this is his definitions. Paganism is a noun, heathenism, the worship of false gods or the system of religious opinions and worshiped maintained by pagans. So whether it's Hare Krishna, whether it's Buddha, what, what, whether it's, you know, the Islamic concept of Allah, We're talking about not the true God. We're talking about false gods. And so we need to identify that, however fanciful or like, Oh, I really like the way they dress. I really like that music. This is all going to be a manifestation of their rebellion against God. So then I went to heathenism. It's a noun again. His first definition there was Gentileism, so in other words, apart from faithful biblical religion, paganism, ignorance of the true God, idolatry, and the rights or system of religion of a pagan nation and then he also says rudeness, barbarism, and ignorance. so Noah Webster wasn't playing nicey and trying to be you know all inclusive and pluralistic in what he was saying his viewpoint was a biblical worldview and he was identifying this is a biblical worldview and this these other things are not. Well, then the third word I looked up was romantic because our question was, are we romanticizing this other way of viewing the world other than the Bible says? And It was helpful in as much as he was saying pertaining to romance, wild, fanciful, extravagant, improbable, fictitious, fanciful, wild, full of wild or fantastic aspects. So could we not say, Charles, that religions other than the revealed word of God, which would comport with how he made us, so that would be the thing that most resonated right, because he made us in his image, that when we see the emergence of pagan religions in our own culture, or what some people will call neo-paganism, is that what we're seeing is a codification of rebellion against God.
0: Yes, and this goes all the way back to the beginning, uh, especially in terms of the old covenant church, uh, the nation of Israel, uh, God gave them very strict warnings about engaging in the pagan practices of the cultures to which they would either settle in or pass through on their way to the Promised Land. Uh, for myself, I want to be clear that I'm not equating. Well, well let me let me rephrase this. Um, and when we talk about paganism, uh, we're using these classical definitions. We're not necessarily saying that you know, using that as a pejorative sense of calling somebody. Uh, evil in terms of, say, being a criminal or, or something of that nature. Uh, we're talking about a theological aberration. And obviously there are going to be problems in any type of worldview or religion that deny the basic truths of Holy Scripture. However, having said that, uh, the, the problems related to a religion such as Hinduism that is polytheistic and worships many different gods— it, the, those set of problems are going to be very different than a monotheistic religion like Islam or Judaism uh, for, I, I hope, obvious reasons. So I wanted to put that out there. Right. Um, on, on the other hand, the the codification of rebellion against God is something that human beings have been trying to do from the beginning. And because of man's desire to be his own God, uh, this is where uh, they people are led to try to justify their rebellion and we're talking about romanticizing it you know for a young person in 1968 listening to the Beatles Sergeant Pepper's album which was a conduit for some of this stuff you know it's one thing or maybe that would lead them to go read the writings of their their the guru who was their teacher and I'm not again I'm specifically not mentioning names and you know they're sitting in their uh, their study of their home that's you know built based on capitalistic standards of of a, a basically however poor poorly observed christian culture but that's a very different sort of thing than actually doing that and understanding those teachings within the context that produced them and that's one way that these things get romanticized they're taken out of their cultural context And they're grafted on into another. And, uh, you know, maybe another way of understanding this is to say, as we look over the years of the numbers of people coming from, in some cases, profoundly unbiblical or non-biblical cultures to these United States, we just simply don't see the flow in the opposite direction. I mean, how, how many people raised with a Christian worldview in these United States are just you know, getting major flights and, and getting on ships and, and sailing to India or, or some other place because they want to embrace that culture. I don't know. More, more
1: often than not, they want to be missionaries to the culture. So they go, but they don't go because there's something better there for them to apprehend.
0: Exactly. Or if they do think there is, uh, you know, I, I don't have anything specific to recommend, but I think uh, from what I I think I'm aware, there's plenty of it out there. You can read the personal, firsthand experiences of people from the 1960s and 70s who were really taken in by this romanticized view of some form of paganism or other, and uh, they they went to the, the quote homeland of some of these faiths, and uh, the the comeuppance and the stark reality hit them like a brick in the face. It wasn't anything like sitting in the living room listening to an album by somebody who believed this stuff.
1: Exactly. And our friend Vishal Malgawadi wrote, he and his wife wrote a biography of William Carey, the missionary to India. And he attributes to the Bible being taught and promoted to help change India in many areas away from the paganism that you described. So when the word of God is introduced into a culture, There is going to be a conflict because these non-Christian, non-biblical cultures, I think non-biblical is probably a better way to phrase it, have developed. The people don't necessarily know why their tenants are in place, but when the missionary comes and shares the reality of the fall, the reality of a need for a savior, and then the good news that someone has paid the price for your sins then people change. And that's how the West came about. Because if you remember, the early church didn't have Western civilization to move into. It was the application of biblical law and biblical principles that created the West.
0: Yes. And let me also be quick to say on that note that uh, there was plenty of paganism (laughs) to go around in the ancestral homes of many of us in these United States. Uh, Places like what is modern day Great Britain, Germany, France, Spain. Those areas were dominated by pagan, sectarian, polytheistic, tree worshiping, uh, sometimes uh, cultures that practiced human sacrifice, all kinds of horrific, evil things based on the idea of, you know, that there are gods in the trees and gods in the rocks and all this, you know, sort of thing. It, It is a culture as dr rushduni pointed out they they all lead toward death because right. it it is a suicidal mission to fight against the uh, truth of god and that's where it always ends up so the the missionary efforts of the early christian church and later to spread the message of the kingdom uh, all over the world especially if we're concentrating I'm, I'm throwing this out because i don't want anybody to think we're picking on india <laughs> you know right. this, was plenty of this sort of thing going on in, in Europe. But, but the difference is is that h- however uh, poorly the form, uh, Europe largely embraced the Christian faith, if not completely. Uh, right. And so that is what made the difference in terms of how the rest of the world developed.
1: And then according to your world and life view, that's either a good thing or a bad thing. So we have people now who are actively working towards creating a truly pagan society. And just so we're clear, this isn't like you see in the movies and I'm talking about people running around, uh, you know, a bonfire chanting, although I'm sure that there are those who would think that was a positive thing. I found this definition of paganism from Jay Gresham Machen in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And this is the quote, paganism is that view of life which finds the highest goal of human existence in the healthy and harmonious and joyous development of existing human faculties.
0: Mm.
1: Now, yes. who could object to that? Does that sound great? Reach your potential. This is the, the highest goal. Well, if we go back to the Westminster shorter catechism, what, did, what did they come up with those who put together um the, these basic doctrines with the confession, the catechism, I'll let you say it. What was the highest goal?
0: The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever.
1: So if we are going to break the religions of the world, there's really only two there's biblical religion and then there's everything else. And we could put that under the banner of humanism. But as Mark Rushduni pointed out in a discussion we had years ago in our Book of the Month Club where we were discussing the biblical philosophy of history, and that conversation is still available on the Chalcedon site, he said when men run from God, they don't always necessarily run in the same direction. So it's not a monolithic rebellion. One goes this way, one goes that way. But if you can say, is the highest goal here the furtherance of human beings and asserting that human beings can reach their potential, can reach all that they're capable of apart from God, that is a pagan worldview.
0: Yeah, it's important to realize, too, to to give some balance. Again, if anybody thinks we're picking on one particular pagan culture over another, that one way that paganism becomes romanticized in the forms that we see it in our culture, what's left of it, is that the, uh, the the spinoffs of people who have attempted to live their lives by the definition that Dr. Machen gave in the quote you uh, shared with us, is that it almost always leads to some form of sexual decadence or degradation. And that is also evident in the teachings of Holy Scripture, where the the laws, the case laws, and the examples of the application of the Ten Commandments that God gave the Old Covenant Church, a lot of it had to do with those kind of issues. And so, uh, to go back to the era of the 60s, where a lot of this began to sort of uh, grow feet, if you will, and to um, expand to where we are today, there were images and notions, either through literature or music or, or motion pictures, that a life of unbridled sexual expression uh, or a a life of sexual expression that is completely unbound by God's law is one of fulfillment and happiness and joy and excitement and all that sort of thing. That's that is that is a romanticized view of pursuing uh, that aspect of life completely divorced from what God says requires. And again, just like the, the starry eyed, hippie that went over to India in the 1960s expecting to, you know, get in touch with their inner chakra or whatever. Um, there have been plenty of people who've signed on for the sexual revolution who have just been left uh, by the wayside on the side of the road um, through for various things relating to suicide, uh, all kinds of things that result from a, trying to pursue that pagan lifestyle with for the promises of fulfillment and happiness and excitement. It just didn't turn out that way.
1: So I think we could call it a neo paganism because it won't look like exactly the way it was in the first century or subsequent centuries um as Christianity civilized the barbarians etc but if you take a look at a progression so like why were the 60s so significant well I would say a lot of it would have to go back to the decades before Because it's very easy to fool people who are not grounded in truth, and harder, not necessarily impossible at times, but harder to sway people away from the truth. So basically, you had people who were experiencing no true answers to the questions of life, which of course are found in scripture, as you removed the standard, the Bible, the text of the history of mankind, which the Bible is because it's predominantly a history book, then it was going to be substituted with something else. And it would be this evolutionary mindset that's applied to various different disciplines. So if you look at the world from an evolutionary point of view, there's no reason to say people who came before were better than we are. Because you see, we're all progressing. So after the sixties, look at all the wonderful things. And I put that in quotes that transpired. We legalized the killing of children in the womb. We formally accepted, even if we had to grin and, you know, give a smirk because we just thought this was wrong. People who did not view sexuality as a God given gift to a committed man and woman in marriage. So now we started expanding what we would call marriage. And now we're today at probably what they consider the next stage of evolution that we're going to eventually obliterate the distinction between males and females. Well, this is all tied in with evolution, as I said, but this whole idea of magic. So we magically say, The person in the womb isn't a person. Boom, they become not a person. We magically say that someone who God created as a woman doesn't quite feel that way. So magically, we're now going to say she's a man. So our culture, and all you really have to do is go to a library or a bookstore and look at how much space, how much real estate is devoted to pagan fantasy and the occult.
0: In the essay that I referenced at the beginning by Dr. Rustuni, Civilization, Civil War, that he wrote in 1973, he actually traces what we were dealing with in the 60s and especially what we're dealing with now, although, of course, he wrote this in 73 and he passed away in 2001. But um, he traces it actually back to the medieval era and the rise of humanism at that time and what led eventually to the Renaissance and that, that effort to form this synthesis between a humanistic ideal and a Christian one. And that, that eventually began to break down, and that's what eventually led to uh, where we are today, although the Protestant Reformation was a serious challenge to that. But people need to understand that you know, history is moving, and it, it is progressing, but it's either going to be according to the satanic model, or is going to be according to the kingdom model, which is the eventual triumph of God's kingdom throughout the world. But it's like uh, every person, you, me, everyone around us, we're all on a stage of development and a journey from one point to the next. So, no, uh, the 60s and the 70s, to some extent, were the flowering of some of this stuff, but the roots go much, much deeper. And a lot of people don't know that one of the driving forces in the Renaissance era was, in fact, paganism. I didn't understand this myself. I was having a conversation with someone some years ago who pointed this out to me and mentioned the name of a very famous German philosopher from uh, the 18th century, I believe it was, and how this man was all into paganism. I said, hey, look, I, you know, I studied philosophy in college. I never heard anything like that. Well, the interest in going back to the sources, the ad fontes, uh, being able to read ancient Hebrew and Greek, and these sort of things. Well, it, it certainly played an important role in the Protestant Reformation. But the humanistic, secular variation of that was the desire to read the ancient pagan religions and philosophers in those languages. Um, and and so that was the serious impetus behind a lot of what would lead to the revolutionary movements in seventeenth and eighteenth century Europe. Uh, people who were sick and tired and hated the. The medieval Roman Catholic system as it existed through Europe and some of the Protestant expressions. And so they wanted to completely rebuild and reconstruct society according to a pagan model. And this is where um, Freemasonry and the Masonic um, influence comes in. Because some of these people, they they saw in Freemasonry a model by which they could pursue these revolutionary goals and um, completely affecting and changing society. Uh, interestingly from the ground up and also from the top down. So paganism has always been um, around the edges of civilization. As one uh, popular American essayist made the comment some years ago, fairly recently, actually, she said that, you know, when civilizations begin to crumble, according to her studies, especially Western European history, uh, these things, things begin to break down regardless of the religion. If there's something holding it together, but in, ter- in the terms of the Western world, the Christianity, you see these things start to, to one by one go by the wayside. And she made the point. She said, "You, you can see how, in those cases, the the pagans, the hordes, the uh, the barbarians, they were aware that hey, look what's going on over there in that area where we, we always wanted to go in there, and dominate things, and so just sort of like a, you know a, a wild animal t- lurking on the outskirts to p- pounce." On its prey, uh, these pagan uh, hordes or these barbarians would just uh, bide their time, and when the time was ripe, well, you know, Rome fell, and uh, it, it fell to people of a largely uncivilized pagan way of thinking and living. And uh, there again, this is an example of where following a non-biblical worldview inevitably leads to the same place, and it's not a happy one.
1: Right. So some of the manifestations we see today of this paganism, um, the environmental movement, right, that somehow or other um, the earth needs to be worshipped as opposed to God being worshipped, that um, we have this view that if you believe in Satan at all or you believe in hell at all, which a lot of people will call it mythical, then you he's in somehow or other in the background or not really there at all and isn't a force to be contended with yet. The scripture tells us we have an enemy and it's not, you know, Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or liberals. We're talking about principalities and powers in high places. So if we somehow or other think we have advanced beyond these childish things of good and evil and Satan, as opposed to uh, the triune God we leave ourselves open. And one essayist made a point and said, if America had set out purposely to create an ideal cultural medium for paganism, it probably couldn't improve much on what we have today. And And so rather than think this is random and put our attention on what we have to do is we have to block paganism. No, we have to open the way for Christ. And that's why it's important to understand that many of the manifestations that are going on in our culture today are just revived paganism. And and that if we instruct people we come in contact with, the most valuable thing we can give them is the truth and not look at the Bible as a bunch of stories, allegories or whatever, that they're the drop dead serious, what God wants us to know.
0: And this is one reason it is very important for um, God's people, God's covenant people, to not be overtaken by the psychological warfare that's been going on in our culture for the past at least two years. and goes back much further, as we said, but especially it's been ramped up in a powerful way uh, on the the, the, uh, heels of the pandemic. So people, they're focusing constantly on how corrupt the government is, uh, how evil politicians are and other you know, leaders in our society. Um, people are angry about the, the inflation, high gas prices. Uh, you can't do this. You, uh, this has happened. That's happened. And there is a level of anger and disgust and um, overall dis-ease, and I intentionally separate the two parts of that word, that um, can, can hobble Christians. So we must not live in the world that's being created for us by the news media and uh, the big tech companies and others. We need to live in the kingdom of God, and we find that kingdom expressed and uh, given to us in Holy Scripture. Because as we see, this will inevitably lead to a point, and, and especially the people who've embraced it. I mean, there are people who are walking around who think this is a great thing. They can't wait to be a part of the uh, brave new world. That's coming into view this new world order. That's been envisaged by these people for a long time, but we know where it will end and we know where it will lead. And it, it is inevitably to death and destruction. So that's why it's important for us to be on guard against it and to not let it corrupt our way of life, because these people are ripe and they are open for the message of the kingdom. And, um, As Dr. Rasduni said in that essay, to quote him directly, he said, the bankruptcy of humanism makes all the more urgent a return to a consistent and thorough commitment to biblical faith, to biblical law, and to a biblically governed world and life view. It means, too, that the opportunity for the resurgence of such a faith has never been greater.
1: Exactly. A lot of people don't consider why... God gave the Ten Commandments as he did, and then all the various case laws that proceeded from them. These people had been in Egypt for a long time, so they were obviously familiar with the Egyptian worldview. The culture of Egypt would be a manifestation of that worldview. So could it possibly be, and I'm saying this facetiously because it was, That the sexual laws against having sex with animals, having sex with the dead, visiting or seeking out seers to tell you the future were exactly what was going on, not only in the Egyptian culture, but the other cultures they were going to encounter. Now, if all God wanted to do was to keep them pure and holy and isolated, I suppose he could have put up walls and they just stayed within it but the hebrew people the israelites and we have assumed the inheritance and the charge as the church had a mission to go through and promote the gospel promote the truths of scripture so we're in a war and i wish more people would understand that if you go back to genesis 316 we were told we were in this war the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And somehow or other modern Christians in the West would like to say, there's no war? What are you talking about? Can't we all get along? And can't we just take, give and take from other religious views? And that is called syncretism. In other words, instead of just being so determined that it's our way or the highway, well, first of all, it's not our way or the highway, it's God's way or the highway, right? And there's no getting around that That's the prophetic duty we have. We don't have a prophetic duty to protest all the bad stuff that's going on. We have the prophetic duty to work to further the kingdom of God.
0: And I think that one of the ways that Christians failed in the era of the 60s, and again, we could go back before that, but especially in that time period where many of these things began to come out with the the larger expressions— um, of the worldview is that many Christians belong to churches and theological orientations that simply was, were not prepared at all because they had bought into this idea of syncretism, as you just mentioned it. So um, no, I'm not going to worry about the fact that my child or my neighbor, you know, is following this other way, this other path. That's their business. You know, they they can keep going with it, and it's not really my concern. And that eventually leads to, well, for them personally, it will lead to a bad way because there's no hope, there's no future, there's no life in that way of living, but it also culturally leads to death and destruction. And we are seeing the outplaying of that in so many different ways today. Uh, That's part of the problem and the challenge that we have to face as Christians and members of God's kingdom. Is that Satan mounts his attack on several different levels? It's like somebody described. It's a, it's asymmetrical warfare. You know, you, you can't just focus on the dumpster fire on one side of town and forget everything else. Uh, you've got to be multifaceted and recognize that. Okay, it's easy just to criti- criticize this this one group, and we see this all the time in the in the media. Everybody's got their favorite news outlets. And the, the, the sum total of all our problems in the world are related to that one political party or that one political candidate or, or whatever it may be. And so people think, well, that's all I, we've got to do is just vote this way or go that way and all of our problems will be solved and we'll back, be back in Shangri-La. Nope. It doesn't work that way. Uh, because e- evil and humanism manifest itself in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. And just like in the, uh, if, if any of our listeners are members or regular attenders at a conservative Bible-believing church, well, the devil is not going to subvert that church by marching a member of the Hare Krishna faith down the aisle of your church on a Sunday morning and trying to convert everybody. You know, that obviously wouldn't work. The The devil is far more subtle and clever than that. So this is where you've got to be careful, and, and you've got to be uh, on your guard to listen carefully to what people who would uh, aspire to be your leaders and uh, those who would lead the charge against things like humanism, to understand what is the basis of their opposition? Is it a principle stand on the truths of God's law word, or is it some compromised form of that?
1: And every major issue that people of faith tend to want to narrow in on, you know, stopping abortion, good thing to stop abortion, having, um, you know, an awareness of how detrimental pornography is to the family, and then all the things that proceed out of both of those things, there's this tendency to think that what we need is somebody, somebody at the top to be our champion. And as I was doing research for this, I was sort of surprised to learn that the idea of the hero or the genius, both of those stem from a paganistic worldview. The hero is going to save people. The genius is so far above everyone else that he or she will plot the course. And this one particular, um, I believe it was a position paper by Dr. Rush Juni pointed out that the word genius and the word genie, like, you know, rubbing the bottle to get the genie to come out have similar roots. So when we abandon. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice, and everything else will be added unto you. And we say that what we have to do is just get our guy in office. If, you know, that the real battle is between, you know, the current political rivals right now, that's not the battle. As long as you're focused that that's the battle, um, you're going to miss the real battle. And one of the things that makes it so that a people can be controlled is continually have them in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a problem. So they don't have much time to do anything else. So rather than pull the weeds, which are all there, it's important to pull weeds. But if you don't plant something and you don't nurture what you've planted, at best, all you have is an empty field with no weeds.
0: That's been the problem, uh, and you articulated it, I think, better than I did, in that the people who have aspired to be our leaders, to guide us out of the mess that we're in morally, spiritually, their solutions often are a a blending of slightly biblical ideas along with some popular conservative ideas and a few other things in between uh, libertarian free market type ideas, whatever it may be, that don't comport with God's law word. And the question that Dr. Rostuni continually asked in the face of this, this cultural and civilizational warfare is, are we going to stand and move in terms of God's word and his law or something else? And the answer we give to that question, or more importantly, the way we demonstrate our answer to that question in our lives, and in terms of how we promote those who would aspire to lead us or give us guidance to deal with these things, that will determine the, at least the immediate future uh, in terms of the strife and, and struggle that we find ourselves in now.
1: Which is where presuppositions come in and are so important. If your presupposition is that the reason for your existence is to glorify God and enjoy him because he gives us many benefits and that we do so by means of following the word of God, which he graciously gave us. We didn't have to try to figure out what he wanted. He told us what he wanted. So if that's your presupposition, you're going, <clears throat> you're going to operate very differently. You're going to have a view of the present and the future very different than if you think that the chief end is to elevate all men to their fullest potential and give ground to ideas that aren't in line with scripture. But, you know, you got to give a little. You've got to take a little. I don't think we always appreciate. I know I don't. How much pagan thought is still in my way of thinking? You know, the only way that you can remove that is by replacing it with the truth. And so you have to be a student of the Bible. You have to be a student of the law and you have to question everything that you know, like we're, we're now in the subject of epistemology. How do you know? Well, if you know, because everybody said that from the time you were little, even though that might contradict the word of God, then what is it exactly that you know? And and so I think we have to be um, willing to take a scalpel to our own thinking. And when we come across something in scripture that says, well, that's not exactly how I learned it. And most people agree with this textbook That we have to be such, so committed to following God that we're willing to say, let God be true and all men liars.
0: And on that note, I think that we uh, have hopefully shared with our listeners um, a a good warning, or at least a wake-up call, to be aware of how pagan ideas have been romanticized to make them look more appealing and more acceptable in a variety of different ways and on a a, a number of different platforms, and that uh, God's law word calls us to be strictly faithful to him, uh, lest we find ourselves being fooled into following something less than the path of life.
1: Yes, and my concluding thoughts would be, yes, it's good to study other cultures of the past, but if you don't come into that study with the template that says, what was their understanding of God? How did they view the implications of the creature-creator distinction? Did they have that? Did they not have that? If you don't come in with a template, you can be wowed by the architecture. You can be wowed by the the prowess in engineering. But please don't think that these people came up with it on their own. They were all descendants of Adam. And Adam was a creature unlike us in as much as he operated for a time without sin. So what didn't hamper him that hampers us? And this progression over time, you know, it was 1,600 years from the creation that God took everybody out except eight people. That's 1,600 years. America hasn't even been around for 400 years as a nation. Right. So we have to understand that what we've been given in Scripture is a blueprint for do you want to go this way or that way? And one of the first ways to do it is to make sure you understand how much of your thinking is pagan. And so in terms of book recommendations, because the articles that we um, have discussed can be found in Either Doctor Rushduni's Faith and Action, three volume, which is his his Calcedon report essays, or his um, the position papers, and that's called an informed faith. And again, that has three volumes. Go to the index, look up paganism, and see the various articles that will help you discern. Hmm, have I thought properly on this? And then just doing a search on the Chalcedon site, the word pagan or paganism, you'll see a number of articles by other people, some of which I have referenced here, to realize that this is no small issue. And as our attention is drawn to it, then the teacher in us comes out, whether it's as a parent or someone who just has the opportunity to teach other people who are looking for truth but don't know where to find it. And um, Charles, I think you would agree that every time you have a greater understanding of how God's law applies to your life, it's it's like getting a million dollars. It's like winning the lottery.
0: Yes. The, the, re- the rewards are both uh, here and in the age to come.
1: <laughs> right. But let's not minimize the here part.
0: No. Because, no, yeah,
1: okay. yeah. Because I have people who will come to me and say, I need to understand something, and I and I think maybe you could help me understand it. And and I do, except I point them to the fact I just didn't have this um, special um, endowment by God. You could have it too. It comes from determining that if this is the important stuff to know, not who marries who in Hollywood or what the inflation rate is today or any number of things. Know the vital things, and then the rest will become understandable
0: to you. Yes, indeed.
1: All right, listeners, thanks for joining us. Out of the (laughs) Question podcast at gmail.com is how to get in touch with us, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.